Welcome to Paralyzed Nation. This is Israel's fifth election in less than four years. But what are these elections actually about? This is Amanda Borshel Dan. Join us and our Times of Israel political analysts. Chaviv Retigur, Jeremy Sharon, Carrie Kellerland, Tal Schneider, David Horowitz. As we drill down on these hard-to-answer questions in this limited edition podcast series that is exclusively for our Times of Israel community, welcome to Paralyzed Nation. Hi, everyone. I am here with a very special Paralyzed Nation in which I have a team of experts with me. Today, we have Khabib Rategur. Hi, Amanda. Tal Schneider. Hi, Amanda. Carrie Keller-Lynn. Hi, Amanda. So good to see all of you. So what we're doing today is we are going to answer your questions, your voicemail questions that came in through the email to us, and we will hear what you have to say and what we need to address. So first of all, we have Alexander Roberts. A number of jurisdictions in the United States are using ranked choice voting to avoid deadlocks like this. Could Israel adopt such a plan? Okay, so the question is on ranked voting. To be honest, I have to admit, I have no idea what he is talking about. Who wants to explain what ranked voting is? Carrie, don't roll your eyes at me. (laughs) (laughs) As the resident American, I guess, in this room, uh, ranked choice voting is something that's not really in place in America at the moment. Um, It's this idea that you cast more than one ballot. You would sort of either you can vote um, for your first choice and your second or kind of rank the alternatives below. And that is to kind of say if your first doesn't get a majority that the um, the people who come afterwards in the ballot would, you know, you can you can cast your vote there. I think it'd be very hard in Israel to implement the system because we don't have constituencies. We have one nationwide constituency, if you will, when an Israeli goes to cast a ballot, um, they vote for one party and one party only. And functionally, what you're doing is to vote to give that party a percentage of seats in the Knesset. So there's not really a, a way that you would employ this unless you said that you would give your votes to parties, um, you would redistribute votes for parties that didn't cross the electoral threshold. And then that raises the question of, well, if, if you know, then, you know, you get additional votes for parties that didn't cross the electoral threshold through that, what do you do? So no, I, I don't think that this system would really work at the moment. One way in which it could be employed is if Israel were to make the um, interesting choice to return to a direct uh, election for prime ministership. And then you could have some sort of system where ranked choice kind of helps ameliorate that, where if you know that your candidate for prime minister, uh, that person's party doesn't have the ability to form a coalition, maybe you could vote for another, you can kind of play around with it. But no, I don't think that that would be coming in. It sounds like in order to do this properly or like it, it has been done in the United States, at least you need to have some kind of uh, constituencies, like regions to work with. So Israel does have these regional governments. Anyone want to weigh in whether they could turn into this kind of constituency? Well, first, let me just say that in order to have any kind of change or in in, in order to um, deal with any suggestion like that to get out of Israel's political huge crisis, you need to have 61 majority because you need to change the basic laws of Israel uh, to do any kind of reform ranking uh, voting or any, any other type that you were just suggesting now. Now, since we don't have a 61 majority to form a government, we can't really go into... Uh, election reform 
anytime soon. So it's, um, you know, it's a huge problem for, me, for Israel. We do know, everybody knows that the system is broken, paralyzed as you, as you named it, but we can't get beyond that because we can't fix it as long as we get 61. Once we get 61, Maybe we are out of the woods with a government and this government will definitely not put on its first priority to change the laws. It will just want to, you know, move on. So what you're saying is once we get the 61, which we would need to change anything, we'll just move on anyway because we no longer need a reform. But Javier, do you think we could move to a constituency kind of government? There have been a lot of proposals to do that. Uh, the direct election concept back in the 90s included a suggestion that the Knesset refused to also elect some of the Knesset uh, regionally. Uh, Amnon Rubinstein, uh, author, one of, one of the real fathers of Israeli constitutional law, once had that uh, suggestion. I hesitate to dramatically change Israeli electoral law. If you just game these things out, which often when we rec suggest reforms, we're looking at the problem, but not using our imaginations to think of the potential new problems that we could create, um, often you come across very big problems. For example, ranked choice voting might be a fantastic way to deal very quickly with multiple parties, right? If you have option A and option B, you just pick one. But if you have option A, B, C, D, E, and F, then you would um, have one be your first choice. And then if that one falls way down to the bottom or you know you have a second round, then you just would have a second choice and that would automatically move up for a second round that would happen in a computer very quickly rather than have to have a second day of elections and things like that. So ranked choice voting is a very good way with many, many players to very quickly. But in Israel's case, it would have a very dramatic effect at the bottom and the smallest parties Because if you think about it, a voter knowing that they can have a first choice and a second choice, the reason voters don't vote for the most radical parties, the most fringe, the most marginal parties today is that they might fall under the three and a quarter percent threshold of the votes you need to get into the Knesset. Well, if you know that even if that one party that's your number one falls under, your second choice is, I don't know what, Likud, Labor, or something that's above, right? Uh, or Yeshatid then you would more, you're much more, your vote is still safe. You're not losing it by voting for a party that doesn't make it past the threshold. And so what you could actually end up doing is sending vast numbers of votes way down below the threshold and massively amplifying uh, the most marginal forces in Israeli politics. And so you, th these are the kinds of knock-on effects, these kinds of complicated, unexpected, usually unwanted effects that electoral reforms have because electoral systems are very complex things. You don't, you don't futz with them, you know, too, too easily and too carelessly. Our next question also touches on electoral reform, and it's basically asking whether we should have separate ballots. Let's hear Sigal. Hi, this is Sigal from Jerusalem. Thanks for the wonderful podcast series. I was wondering why we no longer vote separately for the party and the prime minister. What's up with that? So who would like to weigh in about the idea of separate ballots? Carrie already touched on it. Anyone else have anything to say about separate ballots for prime minister and the party? So the technical timeline, after uh, Rabin was elected in 92, this reform was passed to have one ballot, the, the regular old ballot for a uh, party 
for parliament, or, you know, for the party you prefer in parliament, and then a second ballot for the direct election of the prime minister. The first election where it was actually practiced was 96, then again in 99. In 2001, there was an election just for prime minister. The parliament was not disbanded and remained the same. And then by 2000, and then right after the 2001 election, it was overturned. And so by the 2003 election, we were back to just a parliamentary election where prime ministers are essentially elected by the Knesset. Um, and so it was in, it was legally enforced from roughly 92 to 2001. That's just technically. Um, the general consensus uh, in, among Israelis is that it was a catastrophe. The, the goal of the reform was that the people would give a mandate to the prime minister that would make the prime minister unassailable. I mean, just this is the prime minister. Why the people? You don't get in the parliament to question that. And therefore, when the prime minister comes to negotiate a coalition, every small party can't start extorting uh, the prime minister and demanding too much because the prime minister could not be dislodged. The people had elected this prime minister and nothing could be done to dislodge the prime minister. That was the theory. And it was advanced by some of the most important political scientists uh, in Israel. Uh, in practice, the opposite happened. Uh, huge numbers of voters, double-digit percentages of voters looked at their options. They had been committed to the large parties, Likud, Labour, because they felt they needed to be part of deciding who the prime minister was. But now that they could decide the prime minister in a separate ballot, their party vote could be something that much more closely and specifically expressed them. And so they actually left the large parties in just massive numbers. When Rabin was elected in 92, before the reform, he had 44 seats for the Labour Party. When Barack, seven years later, is running in the inside the reform, he wins the election as head of the Labour Party, but with only 26 seats. And so Barack's government is much, much more paralyzed. He can't do anything in parliament. It's great that he's the prime minister. Nobody can question that, but he can't pass a budget uh, without giving much more, right? Shas rises in these years to 17 seats, the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party. Shinui, the sort of militantly secularist party that is anti-Shas, rises to 15 seats. All the culture wars come to the fore. All the margins become the center, and the mainstream parties crash. And so, you know, beware, you know, reform ideas. Well, right. On a general note, let me just say that uh, it is the lesson, as Javiv just said, that uh, reforming constitution, you can never um, know what to expect. And w once you start to play with the rules, you can cause huge havoc and huge um, un unseen events. And for example, when you play with the threshold, just a couple of years ago, less than 10 years ago, they played with the thresholds. They took it up from 2.0% uh, uh, immediately to 3.25. So a huge bump in the thresholds. The, the idea was to get um, some small parties out. Instead, they got a totally um, you know, messy parliament with lo lots more parties. And uh, they got the Arab uh, Joint Arab List United, something that you know, the Arabs didn't, didn't want to do. But because of the union, they rose up to 15 seats. Again, as happened with Shinui and Shas, once you play with the rules, you know, you cannot fix Israel fragmented society by changing the constitutional laws. It just doesn't happen. So we are a divided society. We are the 12 tribes, right? Um, each one is pulling to its own direction. And once you start playing with the rules, everything comes out. Everything is more, um, it's, it's more outstanding, is more even hurting, it's more, it's more blunt. So it, this is not talking, uh, I'm not saying we don't need a reform at all. I'm just saying that we, if we do a reform, 
once we have 61 seats government, we need to do it very, very carefully and slowly. And Tal, speaking to your point about electoral thresholds, I think, Khaviv, you wrote a piece, I think this week, um, where you basically said that most elections now are decided at those margins. And, and we're very much looking at that this election as well. Do you want to explain that a bit? I just, the, the one little fact, I mean, exactly what Tal said, I mean, before the, in 2014, they passed the reform that increased the threshold. At When the threshold was 2%, you needed to get 2% of the total valid votes to enter the Knesset. No election was ever decided by which party passed or didn't pass. When it was raised to three and a quarter percent, every election since 2015 and all the four elections we've just had, and right now the election looks like it's going to be decided at the threshold. Right. You look at the center left at Lapid's camp, or I don't know what to call it, but the non-Netanyahu camp, um, you look there and you see four parties, Labor, Meretz, um, Chadash Tal, and uh, Ram, all of whom are within the margin of error of the threshold. And if one of them goes under, Netanyahu wins the election. And so all the action that decides elections now is among these tiny it will, little parties. It will parties be offset the, with Ayala Chaked going under. So if one, if only one of them is under, then it will be offset by Ayala Chaked. But if two of them are under, right. then elections are And done. Netanyahu suffered this in April 2019. A new right got within three hundredths of a percent of a point of getting in, didn't get in, Netanyahu didn't have his coalition. And so elections are now decided by these tiny marginal players, which means that Netanyahu and Lapid both are now campaigning and desperate to get these tiny parties in, in a way that they just were never dependent on them before. It has actually magnified the power of radicals. It, Netanyahu had to bring in the Kahanists of Utsma Yehudit, because otherwise he just won't win. And so we've created a system where the small parties actually are that one and a quarter point increase made the small parties central to an Israeli election instead of marginalizing them, which was the intent. We actually have a question that's uh, very much in this theme. Let's hear it right now. It's from an anonymous sender. Hi, a question about the elections. What would bring about another round of elections after this one? Meaning, is there a strong possibility that it'll just end in a tie? Are we going to end in a tie? Carrie, no one knows. Um, Yes, we do know. We're polling that we're currently at a deadlock. (laughs) Everybody understands that by now. We are two weeks before election. It's not. It's not solved. Even if one side has sixty-one, it's remains unsolved. You know how how long can you sustain a government of sixty-one? One year. Uh, we saw that that might have been the answer. But something interesting might happen. Until now, every time Netanyahu didn't have his majority, Netanyahu pushed the next election. Now, Lapid will be in that position because Lapid has the seats to deny Netanyahu. Maybe if if it's 60-60, then Lapid potentially, and you know, Gantz doesn't cross over and et cetera, Lapid potentially has the seats to deny Netanyahu 61. But Lapid doesn't have the seats to actually form a coalition unless like Shas or UTJ, you know, crosses, which they haven't yet. So Lapid will now have an interest to redo the election. People are blaming Netanyahu for these elections. We already have polling from Haredi voters that they're sick of these elections and they're willing to leave Netanyahu to stop the election, especially now that they're in the opposition and not getting coalition funding for their communities, etc. Um, for the first time, it, if if it is still 60-60, for the first time, it's in Lapid's interest to force a new election. Um, and so, you know, that might be how we get to a sixth election. And to just throw out kind of a dark horse opportunity here, because I think that the scenarios you both laid out are the most realistic. Either BB magically gets 61 and holds on for however long he holds on, or Lapid successfully blocks. Um, but there's, you know, some wild things can happen um, after Israeli elections, and there's some speculation that maybe Netanyahu 
and Gantz could join hands to create a government that doesn't include Benkvir. Um, frankly, if you look at the numbers, I don't really see how that happens. If they do that, they still won't have the seats necessarily. Netanyahu gave a campaign promise he wouldn't do that. So there's just no way that could happen. <laughs> right, of, of course not. The, the promises. Gantz also, by the way, gave that campaign <laughs> promise. I just, yeah. I, let's put that one aside. Right, and, and let's not blame either of them. I think the, the campaign promise that's most uh, consistently gone back on is the promise of who you will or will not sit with the former government. So I just want to, this just is a funny exercise, okay? I don't know if this will happen, but follow me here. Um, we said something similar with Bennett, and it ended up happening, which was wild, okay? But what if his, what if this is Gantz's strategy? Bibi doesn't have 61. Doesn't. No, nothing Nothing to be done. Uh, because Hadash, etc. won't follow Lapid into an actual coalition, Lapid doesn't have a coalition. And then Gantz is sitting there in the third largest party, and he goes over to Shas. Well, Shas doesn't mind Gantz, right? Shas once gave Gantz a promise he'd be prime minister in the rotation, right? Um, UTJ doesn't mind Gantz. Merits and Labor don't mind Gantz. Everyone but Lapid and Bibi themselves are willing to have Gantz over a sixth election, potentially. And then Gantz comes to everyone and says, listen, I know I'm everybody's second choice or possibly 11th choice, but I'm not vetoed by anyone. No one is vetoing me, right? But they veto each other. So Lieberman won't sit with UTJ. Okay. Or... Um, they want it with merits or labor, so it's uh, it doesn't have the numbers because he needs unless he is able to get Likud and Yeshatid inside together with Netanyahu not playing as prime minister. Can you think he can, he can pull that as the next as the second uh, best uh, candidate? I can't see Netanyahu ending his legacy, ending as like chairman of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. Right, but. But I, I was taught by one of the legendary coalition chairs of Israeli politics, Zev Elkin, who used to be in Likud and now is in Gantz's National Unity or whatever it's called. Um, that, And he was one of the great negotiators of Israeli politics. And he once said, um, as soon as you bring people out of principle and onto numbers, you're done. You figure out the number, but you're done. Get the principle out of the way. So is there a way to get the principle of, I won't sit with, is there something you can give Lieberman? the finance ministry, control over you, something, uh, something significant, powerful. How do you see Litzman and, uh, not Litzman actually, uh, Goldknopf, is, Litzman is, uh, yeah. we're over Litzman. Uh, how can you see him and Derry doing that? Their yeshivas are losing half a billion shekels a year But, but right how now. do you see them sitting together with Lieberman as finance minister? They get can their own finance that? minister. I, yes, the finance ministers, how do the Haredim used to work? They can't have ministers, so they would have deputy ministers. So mm-hmm. there'd be a minister of housing, and then a deputy minister of housing who's from the Haredi parties and only thinks about and works for the Haredim, right? There used to be a deputy finance minister. Haviv is having his optimistic day today. Listen, <laughs> we did, I said this about Bennett. Bennett's going to get whatever, 10 I thought he was going to get, but guns can't, BB can't, but both can stitch together around a Bennett put him on top, right? It's how it, it, the current government of Belgium has this very small party at the top because there's this deadlock between two large groups. One of them teamed up with this small party, gave them the prime ministership, and it's it's something that happens. So maybe this is Gantz. Gantz will pull a Bennett. So here is my November 2nd column. Gantz, get up to the mic and say, I am your second best choice, but no one, no, none of you vetoed me. So kindly recommend me at the president's house and I will make it happen. I'm everyone's second choice and that's enough. And nobody's vetoing vetoing me. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe we do have ranked choice voting. Maybe we have de facto because coalitions are negotiated ranked choice voting. That should be Gantz's strategy. Yep. It is is his strategy right now. Okay. And now for something completely different. That was fascinating, guys. Let's hear from Daniel Goldman. 
Um, hi, my name is Daniel Goldman. Um, my question is, how did the uh, teaching of elementary school maths and English turn into a uh, central election theme in 2022? Yeah, he's referring obviously to the ultra-orthodox being given um, a free slate from uh, the opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu not to be um, in math and um, uh, English uh, school programs as, an, as a campaign promise. And this is unbelievable. I mean, if you're following the news of the New York Times with respect to ultra-orthodox schools in in that region, and you will find similarities with Israeli school kids at the ultra-Dox community not being taught math and English, you know, skills that are basic for any other Israeli in order to go into the workforce. So this is going on for years now. Uh, the Israeli government did not even, you know, did not even send inspectors into the school. It's like a whole autonomous school system. And because of the promise that Netanyahu made to the ultra-Orthodox ultra uh, leaders not to push into that, it became a campaign issue where the others, obviously Gantz, not Gantz, uh, actually Lapid and Lieberman said, you know, we need to have the ultra-Orthodox communities being brought into the, you know, to the modern world with their skills. Um the big question is, how did this become a campaign issue? I mean, we had, there is a new chairman, as we said, to the United Torah Judaism, uh, UTJ. His name is uh, Goldknopf. He is very new to the game. He replaced Litzman, who went out uh, of, the, of politics because of a um, plea bargain in a criminal trial. And Goldknopf is uh, someone we don't really know. He reminds lots of people of uh, the former UTJ head uh, Shapira back in the 80s, I think, or maybe early 90s. Um, uh, a macher, a macher, that's the word for Askan, right? That's the right word for that. Uh, a modern macher with, um, un, um, you know, not really attached or doesn't really understand the, 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 the real life of Israeli, young Israeli. He's just went on TV the other, uh, other day said, what do you need math for? I didn't see that learning math for the secular really helped Israel's community or Israel economy or rather. He actually said that. He also said, why do you need to give uh, soldiers preference in housing? Because learning the Torah is much more difficult than being a soldier. And as you all know, being a soldier in Israel, it's not an easy task at all. It's actually a life-dangering uh, event. In the first, the same days that he said those things, like, you know, day or two later, we had two um, soldiers that were killed in the line of battle. A, a, girl, a, a girl soldier, Noah Lazar, and a, another soldier, uh, Ido Baruch. Um, they were killed just, you know, I mean, he didn't obviously meant it to be on the day of such so those events but his words were so harsh to the secular uh, ears and uh, he sort of tried to uh, backtrack what I'm saying is that you know the first comment of what do you need math for I don't see the economy is doing so good with your all your math skills was just you know mocked and embarrassing actually and um that's the reason, uh, you know, he definitely, I mean, he didn't uh, learn those things. He never served in the military. So quite an amazing phenomenon for the 22 um, election uh, cycle. And, and I'll add, it plays into a larger um, dialogue that's been ongoing for 
years in in Israeli politics and Israeli society, which is that tension between um, ultra-Orthodox Haredi Israel and more secular and more mainstream Israel. Um, The education issue, especially around the topics, uh, the core curricula topics that Tal mentioned, um, has been specifically burning because math and English are really necessary to enter the workforce, and about half of Haredi families are under the poverty line. Um, So there's a lot of implications in terms of this idea of sharing the burden, which first really, you know, burst into prominence in the 2011 protests and has kind of been uh, rekindled somewhat ever since. Um, it, it plays a role in terms of division of budgets and whatnot. But what's actually really shocking to me is that it's almost no longer a campaign issue because once Netanyahu came out and said, uh, I will fund uh, Haredi schools without requiring core curriculum, there's no real debate anymore. Um, the finance ministry, sorry, the education ministry. Well, Goldknopf, Goldknopf is making it to be back on the campaign trail because of his really bad TV appearances. Uh, yes, yes. But it's not an issue that people are actively debating because the the education ministry's plan to kind of sign this deal and force a lot of the, the Haredi separate school systems to take on more core, core curricula in order to get those budgets was shelved because the Haredim said, okay. Well, we'll wait till we see what happens after the election. There were no teeth anymore. And so it's almost become not an election issue except for the principal. And to Khaviv's point, the numbers came out, so the principal sort of went aside. Yeah, I mean, to be cynical, I, I don't think it's a very serious issue at all um, right now because it is a UTJ is suffering in the polls. There are, I don't know, there were polls today of Haredi turnout. Uh, they asked the Haredi community, are you going to come vote? I think 10% said no, which is very unusual. Haredi turnout is usually extraordinarily high. Um, and that's disillusion with um, about 7% of them, roughly, I'm remembering off the cuff, uh, are actually going to the Religious Zionism Party. Um, UTJ itself, the Ashkenazi Haredi Party, is losing probably an entire Knesset seat from low turnout and just literally dislike among its community for the party. And so... Its MKs, uh, including its party leader, are looking for culture wars to fight, uh, to defend the great, you know, community from the, uh, you know, the modern Israel that wants to destroy them and and assimilate them and all of that. They're inventing culture wars out of nothing. Netanyahu promised them whatever he needed to promise them to keep them on his side. He wanted to not be himself hurt by that culture war. Uh, he's worried about UTJ potentially jumping to the other side if he doesn't have 61 at the end of this election, on election day. Um, and then Netanyahu caused so much anger on the Israeli right about the idea that Haredim don't have to learn English and math because that's a terrible drain on the Israeli economy. And the Israeli right is not that. That is not what the Likud voting base thinks. He was asked uh, at a conference uh, this morning or, or last night, he has many appearances right now, he was asked about education and he said, I want all Israeli school children to learn English from kindergarten and not now, which I think it's now from third grade. And he uh, and he said, I want them all to learn English from kindergarten. And then he was asked point blank, including Haredi children. And he said, including Haredi children. And they said to him, but you made this promise. What do you mean? It's not funded. And he said, you can't impose it on the community, but you can talk to them. And you know what? They wanted to. And and so he's, he's, he has this view that you don't fight this fight with them. You don't fight fights. The Haredi community changes profoundly. It's very capable of change. 12 years ago, Shas was a non-Zionist party. And then 11 years ago, it announced it was Zionist and joined the World Zionist Organization. But 
nobody admits there was ever any change. The Haredi community changes in its opinions, in its views, in its thoughts. Massive numbers of Haredim are joining the workforce. About 15 years ago, the Belzer Rebbe, the head of the third largest Hasidic sect in Israel, uh, gave a speech in which he said, if you're not studying in yeshiva, you must go work. And everyone was shocked and dismayed. And then people checked, and it turned out that quarter of his Hasidim were already leaving to go work because they were sick of the poverty. So, you know, the, the, the rabbinic leadership follows the people rather than leads the people. And if you understand that, you understand that the Haredim are changing in very positive ways. And these are a little bit of fake culture wars to mobilize the base. And we shouldn't give it too much, I think, credit. Really interesting, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me today on this uh, live, in person at least, uh, Paralyzed Nation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Paralyzed Nation. We'll keep bringing you our Times of Israel community members' exclusive episodes, including our post-elections analysis. Special thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to Times of Israel community gurus Mick Weinstein and Rena Levin. Don't forget to drop us a line with a voice memo question and we'll include it in future episodes. Please send to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, Shalom. <laughs>